Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley. Is available. At the tone, please record your message. Hi, Dr. E. Hey, Dr. E. Uh, yeah, hi, Dr. Easley. My brother's attending a church where they are using the Mirror Bible. Battles loom large over the definitions of inerrancy and infallibility. I would love to hear a theological point of view of why you should not live with your spouse before marriage. Is there that differentiation between the, the testaments or the covenants and the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit? You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I am your co-host, Hannah Seymour, sitting here with my dear old dad, Dr. Michael Easley. Old. <laughs> oh, sorry. Old. <laughs> <laughs> I am old. Well, it's like, you know, you're my old man. You're, uh, yeah, you're okay. my dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop. My preacher daddy. <laughs> How are you doing today? Yeah, you survived as a PK. How did you do that? Uh, I don't know. I the often, grace of God. Yes, when I get to speak or teach places, I will always tell them that I'm a preacher's daughter because, I mean, that, t- that tells you a lot about a person just yeah. straight off the bat. And then I have other preacher's kids raise their hands, and I tell them, we will host a support group after this is over. Come find me. Yeah. Yeah, but, but you came out great, you know, you, you know, in spite of your mom and me. So <laughs> we're glad. Anyway, so your old preacher dad is fine. Well, good. <laughs> He's honorary as ever, but what is new? That's right. What is new? Nothing. Hey, we've got some great questions. We do. This is pretty cool. I know. And before we jump into some of these Ask Dr. E's, I wanted to give a plug for Logos. We have had a few Logos mobile ed professors as part of the Big Book Cover to Cover series. And I was just thinking about how if you had some of the Logos software, you could use that software to answer some of these questions. Could you not? Absolutely. Uh, I've been an early adopter of the Logos product. It actually started out at Dallas Seminary. It was called the CD Word Project. I did not know that. In the old Hendricks building. Uh, It's a cool story. This uh, businessman saw a pastor with all his books spread out on his table. And he had a little computer screen there back in the days when we had floppy drives. And he said, why can't they put all that on the computer? Huh. And that began the genesis of the CD Word Project. And uh, I knew some of the early programmers, a guy named Mike Hendricks, no relationship to Prof, uh, and some others that were scanning these things and putting them into wow. computers. Now, mind you, this the fastest computer in that day was like 33 megahertz, which you know is it's like nothing. it's it's faster to go to the to the card catalog, <laughs> pull a card out, and go to the the shelf. Literally, but they had scanned a, a number of public domain books and put them online. And Bob Pritchard, uh-huh. who is the president, CEO, owner of uh, Logos, uh, bought the whole thing, the wow. project from Dallas Seminary, and turned no it idea. into Logos. So I was one of the early adopters. And uh, early on, it was a funny program because you had to load floppy disks. Took forever. Searches were clunky. Now it's state of the art. It's it's so stinking fast. The library is exhaustive. He's branched out into, you know, whether you're a Catholic, a, a Baptist, or Reformed. I mean, they've really widened their library, mm-hmm. and then they continue to offer um, this mobile ed program, which is a new thing. Which I, I got to give credit to you and Casey for searching out who are the subject matter experts for some of these books. Mm. And we have been uh, elated with yeah. some of the folks we've had on the broadcast so yeah. far. And uh, big shout out to Bob Pritchard and the team and uh, some of the professors you're going to continue hearing from in the future. And we're just delighted to continue that relationship because I use Logos every day, literally. Yep. It's open this morning, first thing I do. So this is really fun. Logos agreed to partner with us and give 15% off to any In Context listener. And so if you are interested in looking at some of the Logos packages or some of the individual courses, you can go to logos.com, which is L-O-G-O-S.com forward slash in context. And I think it starts at 15% off any of their packages. And you'll see, I mean, there's everything from a basic package to like extreme deluxe gold platinum shiny with diamonds on top. I mean, you know, the range is wide. I got to warn you, it's a little addictive if you're a Bible nerd, if you're a BSF, a precept, a community Bible study person, if you just love teaching the Bible or studying the Bible, it's, it's a bit of a game changer. But that said, uh, thinking about and you grew up, Hannah, watching all the books on my shelves and the bookcases grow. Yep. And I have a laptop computer, a notebook computer. I still love my hardback com- uh, commentaries and reference books, but 
boy, right-click, search. It's such a powerful tool, and um, I don't think it diminishes anything from a Bible study aspect other than you can become too dependent on it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but boy, Or it just takes it... forever. I mean, I think I bought the silver package years and years ago, and I, I mean, I use it all the time if I'm studying to teach. And I mean, sometimes it's like, I've got to cut this off. Exactly. Because, it's a rabbit hole. Because <laughs> yeah, there are so hole. many resources yeah. on this one passage that i got to decide what I'm going to tell these exactly. people. Exactly. And actually, uh, our other friend, Mo Proctor, uh, Morris Proctor, has a, uh, uh, a website we can put in the show notes where he offers training, online training. Now, you used to have to go to a two-day or three-day conference. Yeah, He's put everything it. online now. And so you can you can watch it and rewind it. And uh, I think he's got a monthly subscription service. But he's got a few demos you can look at. How do you do a word study? How do you do a topic study? What about a person, a biography? Mm -hmm. Because it is such a, uh, think of only using spreadsheets and someone giving you Excel. Right. Or only having a yellow pad and someone giving you the Word or Microsoft Suite. Where do you start? Right. And so you really need help uh, jumping into Logos, but they've done a yeoman's job with their front page now to make it user-friendly. And um, I I love that we've uh, had this relationship for all these years. With yep. Logos. So anyway, logos.com forward slash in context. Again, 15% off um, as a starting point. And then, but I think every product that they have on there is on sale through that link up until December 24th. So could be a nice Christmas gift Absolutely. to a friend, uh, a spouse, a child, etc. Okay, well, let's jump into our very first Ask Dr. E question. We've been getting tons of questions from y'all. We are thrilled. And I apologize that we're just now coming out with a new Ask Dr. E. We were busy with the big book cover to cover. but And you were busy with a baby. You had another baby. Well, that's true. I was on maternity leave. I did have a baby. But, you know, <laughs> life continues. Okay, so our first question is an email. So I'm going to read that email for us now. Michael and Hannah, we mentor and are friends with many young adults that say they abstain from sex, but will spend the night at their dating partner's place or go on vacation together and share a hotel room. I would love to hear a theological point of view of why you should not live with your spouse before marriage, spend the night at each other's places, and or share a hotel room while on vacation together if you are abstaining from sexual relations. Dr. E, give us your answer. (laughs) Let's take this in three chunks. Let's take it, number one, in wisdom, number two, in uh, what I'll call needless temptation, and number three, a testimony. All right, let's start with the new creation. Uh, number one, wisdom, uh, this is from Second Corinthians 5.17. Most of us know this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And I think, Hannah, our identity in Christ needs to lead everything we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in a, a friendship now with a, a gentleman my age. I, we've just become friends. He's a retired physician. And he's got some very interesting ideas. And uh, his language and topics of conversation are not uh, comfortable hmm. for me in some cases. But uh, as a new creation, how I respond to him is very important Mm -hmm. and as a new creation I have to say yes and no to certain things and if you're a believer in Christ uh, hey the whole culture I mean your peer I mean your friends they they live together you know before marriage and so forth so we're in a culture that this is accepted and I would just number one say wisdom would say live like a new creation don't don't live like the world Mm -hmm. don't live like your friends you've been bought with a price glorify God in your body Secondly, needless temptation. And for this, I want to read a couple of passages uh, in Galatians chapter, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians chapter 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The first part of that verse, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. So again, um, Let's just say you have the the most incredible self-restraint. You're a solid, uh, rock-ribbed Christian man or woman. You go, well, we can do this. We can sleep in the same hotel. We can vacation together. Um, yeah, but at the same time, uh, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I have a, a, a friend that we both know. They're, they're married now, but they made a rule when they started dating. 
that they would, uh, you know, because you kiss and you, you know, become more and more affectionate yeah. and dating relationship. And they were engaged, we married, and they made a commitment they would not be in a house alone. Yep, it's good. Tyler and I had to do that too once we were engaged. It's just. It's easier to be with other people. <laughs> right, right. You're not going to do stuff when you're in a, a house full of folks. And they even made the uh, decision not to be on a sofa horizontal That's great. together. Yeah. And if we're watching a, a, a film together, a Netflix together, we're going to sit on a couch, not yep. lay on each other's laps. Yep. So I, I think you put yourself in a needless temptation. First Thessalonians chapter 5. 21. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to what is good. First Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form of evil. So examine everything carefully. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain what is evil. And then, of course, he continues about this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from immorality. So we cobble these together and ask the question, am I holding fast to what's good? Am I abstaining from what is evil? And you're just setting yourself up. And then last is your testimony. Um, and I've alluded to this already, but um, we're bought with a price. Uh, we honor God. And, you know, people see this. I mean, the person writing this question, they've seen it. Mm -hmm. And it reflects, right or wrong, it reflects on something that you've got to ask yourself, is it really worth that? Um, let's take a dicey topic like drinking alcohol. Uh, there are those who feel they have the freedom and liberty to do it, sure. not, not intoxication. That's sure. a sin. Sure. But they can have a glass of wine. They, they can have a drink. They don't abuse alcohol. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you're in public, uh, do you have the liberty to do that? Sure. Uh can it affect people? Even if you're the so-called stronger brother, can it affect people improperly? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not trying to be the Holy Spirit in anyone else's life, but you have to make a decision uh, how this looks, the appearance of evil, uh, what it looks like to others. Uh, so in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 to 20, Sorry, I said I was going to look at four passages. This is five, I think. So anyway, hey. <laughs> a bonus passage, bonus yeah, passage, uh, chapter 6, verse 18, flee immorality, period. Wow, that's pretty. <laughs> yeah, pretty direct. <laughs> flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? and that you are not your own. Therefore, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So let's just back way up on this and ask the question, are we glorifying God with our body? Mm -hmm. Are we being wise? Are we avoiding needless temptation? And we take into account, let's just call it for conversation's sake, weaker brethren, weaker right. believers to say, you know, they're living together. And even though they say they're not, sleeping together it sure has the appearance of that and finally uh just as a bonus i would say you know cindy and i your mom and i work with young couples for years and this temptation generally turns into sin it's just very difficult not to uh to succumb to that temptation and it's not the end of the world you know god doesn't hate you if you're falling in immorality before you're married but uh, we would encourage you. It's a gift of God. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Why soil it? Why taint it? And save it for the one unique relationship he gives it to us for between a, a husband and wife all their lives. Well, and I think, too, when you're talking to adults, I mean, if you're able to go on a vacation together, we're talking about adults here, right? This is not a 16-year-old. And Tyler and my advice to folks always is, if you're going to marry this person, you're going to be married for a lot longer than you are dating and engaged. And so while it seems like you're really sacrificing not getting to go on vacations and travel before you're married, it's a really short span of time in your life versus all the years you'll be married and, you know, you'll be welcome to travel together. And, and be a little more creative. I mean, your peer uh, travel a lot more yeah. than your mom and I when we were young. We didn't have the resources or, you know, or the uh, Internet to help us tr travel so quickly and freely. But uh, go with another couple. And the right. guys bunk and the girls bunk. Totally. I mean, it's there, there's ways to do this where you you can still enjoy some of that freedom and, and financial resources you may have to to as a, a mutual friend of ours, he and his wife go 
world at the drop of yep. a hat. all the time all the time <laughs> so it's a different world but i think at the end of the day you do well uh to just encourage people not not beat up on you know their their choices but just encourage them wisdom don't put yourself in needless temptation and it is a testimony to those that are around you okay well let's jump to our next question from david in palmetto florida uh, yeah, hi, Dr. Eagley. This is David from Palmetto, Florida, and I was listening to a back episode of Ask Dr. E, and I was listening to one of the questions in which um, you were talking about basically um, um, oppression and, um, you know, the, you know, I guess kind of the, you know, demonic or evil spirits and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit uh, seemingly to not allow that. And I was wondering if there was a differentiation between the uh, old covenant, so to speak, and the new covenant, um, because we, we seem to see evidence that the devil or Satan, Lucifer, was given permission with Job, and then um, once again also with Peter, where it's like, hey, you know, he's asked to sift you like wheat, uh, but I've prayed for you, is uh, kind of what Jesus had told Peter. And so I was wondering, like I said, is there that differentiation between the, the testaments or the covenants and the, I believe the phrase you stated was the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Uh, thanks again. Um, so enjoy listening to the podcast, and I've gleaned a lot of information from that. So thank you. Hey, thanks, David. Great question, and thanks for the feedback about the podcast. We love hearing how it's helping and ministering to folks. Uh, let's go back to Psalm 51 as a as a backdrop and a beginning. The psalm, of course, is written after David's sin with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah the Hittite, uh, the failed cover-up, and uh, this is a fascinating psalm, uh, not to digress too far, but essentially he's asking, um, or he's petitioning, I'd offer a sacrifice, but there, there's none I can give. The only thing that's due here is, is that I'm killed, uh, capital punishment, for what I've done. So that's the, the backdrop of the psalm. In verse 11 of Psalm 51, we read, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, I don't want to get into isolated verse theology, but this is a trend that we see. Uh, Saul, of course, is harassed by an evil spirit from the Lord. Here, David fears the Holy Spirit being taken from him. So we talk about the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and how a believer is, you know, once a man or woman comes to Christ, puts their trust in Christ and Christ alone. He or she is indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit. Let me also read from Ephesians and where Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 13. And by the way, Ephesians 1 is such a great chapter for so many reasons. Folks that have questions about predestination and election, folks get really upset about, how do you believe in predestination and election? Well, just read Ephesians 1 a few times, and that'll it'll help you understand how the New Testament portrays this doctrine. But in chapter 1, verse 13, we read, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, don't miss this, you've heard the message, you've believed it, you've embraced it, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That word sealed in the New Testament is a pledge. It's a fun Greek word, it's stragizo. It's the idea of a promise of the view of redemption. And then we find a similar phrase in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so we could cobble together a number of New Testament passages, but we're learning by the New Testament, by Acts 2, the uh, fulfillment of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit permanently indwells the believer. Now, to your question about covenants, it's a great observation, old and new covenant. And I, I think, yes, that's, a way, that's certainly a way to look at it because the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 wasn't going to occur until a future time. So we know that Old Testament believers did not have that permanent indwelling. Now, back to your bigger question, uh, demonic oppression or possession. So I would say that we have to differentiate between those who were harassed, like Job, uh, and versus those who were possessed. Let me read a couple of definitions. This one is from Charles Ryrie. A demon resides in a person, exerting direct control and influence over that person, 
will certainly be of derangement of mind and our body. Demon possession is to be distinguished from demon influence or demon activity in relation to a person. The work of the demon in the latter is from outside and demon possession from within. Good, good, good distinction. So a person who's internally harassed, possessed, versus one who's harassed from the outside. He continues, by definition, a Christian cannot be demon-possessed since he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's good to know Dr. Ryrie holds my view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. someone agrees. Even though he's with the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) However, a believer can be the target of demonic activity to such an extent that he may give the appearance of demon possession. So, again, I don't want to get too quagmired on this, but I think it's a good reminder of harassment or oppression versus possession. And without uh, debate, you're correct. In Job, God allows uh, Job to be harassed by Satan and even ups the ante when Satan comes back to him and says, you know, you can harass him, but you can't take his life. You can't touch him or kill him, in other words. And then by the New Testament, we have a number of illustrations where people are harassed. The Gerasene demoniac is clearly demon-possessed. And when uh, Christ exercises the demons and sends them into the, the, the herds of the pigs, and then he's the man's clothed in his right mind. So, yes, to answer your question, I think you can look at it from a covenant, uh, old covenant, new covenant lens. The new covenant promised the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit of God. That, again, is one of the ways the apostles were authenticated in Acts chapter 2 and following, is they were indwelt by the Spirit of God. They possessed powers that they did not have otherwise apart from God's Spirit, and that authenticated their message, that authenticated them as men who'd been with Christ. And so we fast forward to the New Testament and have them casting out evil spirits, and then also dealing with people that are demon harassed. And again, just to circle back to the Ephesians 1.13 and 4.30 verses, that sealing, uh, you think of a scroll, a Roman scroll that was sealed. Uh, maybe you've seen uh, some of the romantic uh, movies where a person uh, uses wax on a, on a scroll or a letter and they have a ring, a signet ring, and they seal it with their signature. The idea was that was not to be broken until it got to the proper recipient. That's a good illustration. So we're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. So his indwelling in your life and mine, anyone who trusts Christ, that permanent indwelling seals us to redemption. And, of course, he is at work in our lives in the, in the process of sanctifying us. But that differentiates the permanent indwelling versus the temporary indwelling of the Old Testament believer. It's good news for us. I'm grateful for that. And, you know, as, as I often say, the Holy Spirit is better and a guilty conscience. That's right. <laughs> a lot better. <laughs> okay, let's head into question number three, also an email. And I am going to ask our engineer, musician, songwriter extraordinaire, Chad Cates, to read that email for us. Battles loom large over the definitions of inerrancy and infallibility. What do these terms really mean when it comes to specific verses? For instance, some will say it's an error when the Bible uses round numbers for how many in a tribe or for the number of people killed in a battle, when the text uses specific numbers in other places, or when one gospel account has Jesus calling for a single donkey be brought to him. He says, bring it to me. When the other says a donkey and a foal of a donkey, and he says, bring them to me. Or they'll cite the last two verses of Second Chronicles, which duplicates the opening verses of Ezra exactly, but cuts off the command of Cyrus mid-sentence, losing the gist of his command. Obviously, God didn't inspire the writer of Chronicles to do that. There was an error in transmission over the centuries, and part of Ezra was copied into Chronicles. I've heard good theologians say, and I tend to agree, that Scripture is accurate and dependable enough for the purpose for which it's intended. But to insist that every word, every description, every story is perfect down to the molecular level leads to unnecessary controversies. It's a great question. Uh, The inerrancy errancy issue is uh, never going to go away as long as we're on this planet. So let me start with a couple of passages. Let's start with, and, and many of you know these already, let's start with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired. 
Theophanoustus is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Uh, and also in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So let's use these two as a framework. So in Second Timothy chapter 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. That word is, is a huge word for theologians and Bible students, that God moved men to write these things. And in Timothy's, it was Paul's writing the younger Timothy, he's saying, look, the Bible is your proof, is your authority for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. And he continues, so the man of God might be adequate equipped for every good work. So this is our authority. This is our baseline. That's why it's so important. What Peter adds to this, which is a beautiful passage in verse 21, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. That word moved, uh, obviously it's from one place to another, but there's some extra biblical uses of that term that talk about a boat that the the water moves the boat in the sense that the water fills the sail the rudder of course guides it but the idea is the holy spirit moved a person to do this so in our sanctified imagination we have the authorial style paul isaiah whatever author you want to look to, we, we see style, we see word choice, we find uh, similar ideologies, the way they write, but it's the big A author, God, the little A author, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Paul, Luke, or whomever. So that's our baseline. We start with inerrancy there. Now, secondly, when we talk about errors in the Bible, um, on the one hand, we do have some transmission errors. Now, before you get all upset that I Michael said the Bible has errors. There are transmission errors. We'll talk about that in some detail. The autographs, what was originally written, was without error. And there are layers of views on inerrancy. Uh, We use this cumbersome definition, verbal plenary inspiration, meaning the words in their fullness is a simple way to define that. Uh, guys like John R. Rice believed in like a dictation theory that God told them exactly what to write. Uh, and some of these other inerrancy views can be a little uh, complex and a little bit overwrought. But we like the word verbal inerrancy. The, the words were inspired by God. The fullness of the meaning, the fullness of the word is inspired by God. But we have to acknowledge there is authorial style. Now, Transmission errors did occur. Let me give you uh, from Paul N's book, which is, by the way, I encourage folks to have a single-volume commentary on the Bible, a single-volume theology book on the Bible. So, uh, for example, the Bible Knowledge Commentary by Dallas Seminary, which actually two volumes. Uh, Moody has a single-volume Bible commentary. Holman has a single-volume Bible commentary. And then in the theology range, uh, you've got uh, Paul Enns, which is a great single-volume book by uh, Moody Press. You've got uh, Floyd Barackman. You've got a guy named Walter Elwell in the Reform Camp. And these single-volume theology books are so helpful. I have several uh, from different traditions because it's, it's a quick way to go look something like this up. In ends, he gives a list, and I'm just going to scan a couple of these bullets because they're helpful for me. Um, inerrancy does not demand verbatim reporting of events. You don't have to have a verbatim report. In times of antiquity, it was not the practice to give a verbatim repetition every time something was written out. Verbatim quotation could not be demanded for several reasons. And he lists some I won't detail. Secondly, Inerrancy allows for departure from standard forms of grammar. Obviously, he writes, it is wrong to force English rules of grammar upon the scripture. For example, John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. Whereas in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In English, this would be considered a mixed metaphor, but it's not a problem in Greek grammar or in the Hebrew language. 
So all he's pointing out there is, and I often bring this out in my teaching, one of the challenges we have reading the Bible is we're trying to think from a Western mindset grid. We need an outline. We need a purpose statement. We need a thesis clause if you're a person who loves literature. And to think the way the New Testament coin in Greek was penned, to think about Hebrew mindset, we have to understand uh, some of these things don't translate, no pun intended, into our Western mind. A third bullet he observes, inerrancy allows for problem passages. Even so, this vast work of the scriptures, it's impossible to provide solutions for all the problems. And I'm reminded we interviewed um, Mark Chevalis, who he had a great observation, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase what he said. He, that's a good that's a good illustration of uh, transmission. See, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> yeah. I'm not giving a literal quote. Yeah. But to paraphrase him, he says, you know, don't come to the Bible uh, expecting an answer for a question you have of that passage. What is that passage telling us? And that's just a simple recalibration of how we look at the Bible. Uh, and then fourth ends concludes, inerrancy demands the account does not teach error or contradiction. So back to your question, uh, where there's a difference between uh, an ending in a chapter or numbers, let's give the text room to breathe in the sense that uh, maybe that was not the critical case. It was 23,000 or 24,000. Uh, I read and stumbled across this this weekend. I was so excited. Uh, I was privileged to have Dr. Norman Geisler as a professor a hundred years ago when I was in seminary, but what they've done on this site called Defending Inerrancy, and we'll give you the link on the show notes, he's got a pull-down menu of every book of the Bible with the problem passages. Amazing. It's cool. And so you just go to like the Second Chronicles, click on it, and then it gives you links to other things he's written. And he actually has the answer to this question in Numbers 25.9, what does this verse say about 24,000 who died when 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 8 offers a different number and he gives a really good answer and I'm going to let you look it up on your own I'm not going to give it to you Uh, but the point is don't project on the text some of our presuppositions Uh, a little homework helps and goes a long way in understanding that I do want to circle back and, and underscore inerrancy is so important because if the Bible is full of error then we can't look at it authoritatively. And to sort of round this conversation off, and, you know, when Jesus cites a number of passages in the, in the Bible to talk about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, when the, the New Testament authors refer to the Bible, they're talking about the Old Testament. There was no question in the New Testament writers' minds that the Old Testament was without error. The problem is when we force our view of uh, there's no mistakes in the Bible. Well, there are transmission errors. There are copyist errors. And when a human being copied the Bible, he made mistakes. We know this from the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. One of my professors at Dallas, who is also with the Lord, uh, Dr. Harold Honer, said we have 120% of the evidence when it comes to New Testament documents. (laughs) Uh, So when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, uh, let's just use an illustration. Did it say the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus? The kingdom of God in Christ? The kingdom of Christ? Let's just use that as an illustration. So as we looked at those different shards, uh, pieces and fragments, which one was right? And there's all sorts of higher critical theory about these fragments and the simplest one is what I call the harder is the better so the harder reading the shorter reading was more than likely the accurate transmission think about it if you're copying the Bible and you go you know it'd be really helpful if I put in Christ Jesus in there Maybe it was subconscious when the the, uh, scribes were making that transmission copy. Maybe it was intentional. We don't know. But the point is, do any of those lead to a different theology? No. So we have a lot of information in the New Testament particularly. We have to pare some of it back. And if you have a study Bible or a Bible with cross-references, it will always say some of the better manuscripts say or some manuscripts omit this part. The most, the most pointed one is the end of Mark. 
And that's where, of course, where we get the whole idea of snake handling. If you look at Mark chapter 16, the final chapter, most Bibles will have a notation that these verses, let me, let me look at mine and, and show you exactly what it says. Um, I said that now, it's not going to be here. Here it is. So I, I'm reading a New American Standard Center Column Reference Bible. And in Mark chapter 16, there's a notation at verse, uh, at verse 20. And it says, A few late manuscripts, MSS, manuscripts and versions containing this paragraph, usually after verse 8. A few have it at the end of the chapter. And this, this whole section from verse 9 to verse 20 is more than likely not part of Scripture. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you'll see a note in your Bible, and there's all kinds of uh, very uh, laborious reasons about why it's included. So for grins, I'm cur- I have this big New American Standard Bible. It's got 1,200 and let's say 50 some pages in it. If you took all of the really problematic text, including Mark 16, they probably fit on about three pages of your Bible. So we're not talking about you know tons of transmission errors or tons of manuscript errors, and so the reliability is all the more reinforced. Uh, there are more errors in copies of uh, of Plato's Republic than there are in the Bible when you look at the corpus of literature and how old the transmission is. So it's a great question. There are some transmission errors, and there are some questions, and there are also some really good answers, and I would steer you to defending inerrancy uh, the Norm Geisler page and they've done a great job uh, handling some of these difficult passages that there's some reasonable explanations for some of these questions. So I think this is actually a really good transition to our last question for this episode so let's take a listen to Julie. Hi Dr. E this is Julie from Spring Lake Michigan and I have a question for you um my brother's attending a church where they are using the Bible. It's called the Mirror Bible, M-I-R-R-O-R. And I was just wondering if you have any ideas about this Bible, what you know about it. I have a little, I have some concerns about it. I wondered if, if you did or if you looked into that. I'd appreciate your help. Thank you very much. Well, let's start. Number one, I'm not an expert on the Mirror Bible. I've done a little homework on it just because of your question. And what I can tell you is, is the authors call it a paraphrase of the Greek New Testament. Um, Another friend of mine who's kind of a go-to apologetic expert, I reached out to him and asked, and his, his comment was, I am concerned that the author's universalist theology may taint his paraphrase. So I don't want to wholesale, you know, disregard something or throw it under the bus because I don't know and there's not uh, some critical reviews that I can find. Let's back up with a bigger question about translations. And um, one of the reasons I'm a stickler for the New American Standard Bible uh, is because of the nature of how they um, translate the Hebrew, uh, some Aramaic in the Old Testament, and Koine Greek New Testament into what we call English. Now, let's talk about literal translations and paraphrases, and let's use those in a big jump, and and also versions. So a literal translation, arguably the New American Standard, the King James and New King James, um, ESV and all my friends who love ESV would would put that in the camp as well. I, I would I would challenge that a bit because it's an RSV, um, extensive RSV update. When we go to NIV, we're moving into an interpretational level. And I know I'm going to hurt a lot of people's feelings and some of my friends in Zondervan, but the NIV Bible is a very readable Bible, uh, but it does make some interpretational leaps that are uncomfortable for me personally from a study aspect. If I'm going to read through the Bible in the year, I've got no problem with it. If I'm reading it devotionally, I've got no problem with it. It, it is an easier Bible to read. Uh, the Net Bible, uh, produced by a number of Dallas Seminary professors, is another good offering. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is now called the Christian Standard Bible, is a very good rendering. So we've got literal translations to paraphrases. The most uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message 
would be a sub-paraphrase, in my opinion. The Living Bible is a paraphrased Bible. And when you're saying literal to paraphrase, I mean, we're really talking, it's being translated word by word, a few words at a time, like phrase by phrase, or kind of, I mean, we jump to the message, it's like, Concept. Yeah, concept con- by concept. Con- yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a concept. Yeah. And and even when we say word by word literal, that's technically pushing it. Right. Because when you read Hebrew, you can't go word to word literal because there are idioms, there are syntax problems that don't not problems with the Bible problems with how we render language mm-hmm. A into language B. Mm-hmm. So th- there is some license from a translation point. The reason I'm a stickler, and, and by the way, I, I love the ESV. I love the New King James. I preached out of the Holman for about a year as well. I think they have value. Um, I go back to the New American Standard for a, a handful of reasons. I know I've digressed way off your question, but it's a good opportunity for me to, to explain why I uh, choose this as a study text. Um, let's talk about the loving kindness. In the Old Testament, this arguably is the most important. This is Michael Easley's view. One of the most important words, if not the most important word in the Old Testament, is from the Hebrew word chesed. looks like chesed, chesed. Um, that word is always rendered loving kindness in the New American Standard. That's a cumbersome word. It's not a word we use in, in normal, you know, language that we, in the commerce of language today. ESV chose steadfast love, and they consistently rendered chesed, steadfast love, every time. When you get to these other Bibles, they might gloss that word to love or kindness or mercy, and they do that in the context to make the reading a little easier or a little smoother, and they go, that would sound more like the way the English mind uh, learns. And I'm not against that, but as a, as a Bible student, I want to know, if this is an important term, uh, can I see it? So if you were to look at my Bibles, you would see the word loving kindness underlined in a red pen throughout the whole English Bible. So I'm making a connection with that. The other one that it continues to grieve me is the, um, the loss of the divine pronoun being capitalized when it refers to you, your, I, me, my. If that reference is God, I need help as an English reader especially in the Psalms or in Proverbs or in some of the narrative that gets a little deep, uh, is this talking about the, the person, the referent before or after it, or is it talking about God speaking? So we have what we call red letter Bibles where the New Testament, the words of Jesus are in red. And people have made fun of this for years going, well, the whole Bible is God's word. It should be red. Well, I think the point's missed. Um, It's good when you're reading the gospel. Sometimes is Jesus speaking or is someone else speaking? And so that's a convenient way, a simplified way to say, okay, these are the words of Christ in red. Now, all that to come back to the mirror Bible, not being a, uh, a reviewer or a critic of it, I would simply say, look, the Bible, in, in the English language, we have so many English versions. It's ridiculous. If you were to go to uh, China, you have the state-approved Chinese Bible. If you go to India, you've got the primary Indian language. There's no King James over there. There's no Indian Bible over there, uh, King James Indian Bible. They're in their own mother tongue. Uh, we have family friends that have translated in uh, Indonesia the Yawa language. It's a unique language of a tribe of a couple of thousand people. All the work of new tribes, all the work of SIL. Um, I, I know I'm digressing way off this question, but it's a good springboard to, to say as English readers, we're almost obsessed with the next new rendering of the Bible. Mm. And we have so many of them at our disposal online, on your phone, for goodness sakes, that are uh, a quick snapshot. And so I just encourage people, the New American Standard Bible is a great baseline that is a very good literal rendering, not dynamic, not thematic, not concept translation, but they do their best to give a word-to-word, and even that's... uh, I've already qualified that, but a literal rendering as best we can in English. And so at the end of the day, uh, I'm glad anybody's reading (laughs) any Bible, but I personally avoid the paraphrases. If I'm reading to uh, my grandsons, I'm going to read a paraphrased kid's Bible. But as soon as they're old enough to understand a little bit uh, uh, more uh, 
graduated grammar, I'm going to get them into a Bible that is a little more literal in its translations because this is, after all, the Word of God. And I don't want to water it down or diminish it or make it too easy. Why does it have to be easy to read? Maybe we need to be students and dig a little bit when it comes to some of these uh, cumbersome uh, translations. But I do think, I mean, I know you pretty well. I think you would have some concern about a church that's saying, we're going to use this Bible. Not, I mean, you do that with an NASB. You'll say, I'm, I, I preach from NASB. I encourage you to, but uh, if they're choosing a Bible that's, truly a paraphrase and not right. like the message. And I mean, the message can be a great added part of your, if you're studying in the NASB and then, you know, you want to read something, it's a really hard Pauline passage. You want to read it in the message real quick and go, okay, wait, I think I know now I know where Paul's coming from. Now I can go back into the NASB. It's not bad, but for a church to on the pulpit say, we're only going to use the message here. We're only going to use the mirror Bible. We're only going to use X Bible. There's there should be some concern there, correct? Right, right. I, I think any time a, a church is mandating a translation. Now, that said, um, you've got a pew Bible, perhaps, in some old churches, and right. that's the one the pastor is going to read from. But if they're saying, don't read other Bibles, certainly, red flag, not a yellow red flag. Now, let's just talk about the message for a moment. I don't even think the message is a Bible. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a Bible. With great respect to Eugene Peterson and what he tried to accomplish, uh, I don't think it's a scripture. And I think uh, calling it a paraphrase is a little bit of a a little bit over the edge uh, because he takes such grandiose liberty. Now, if he's saying let's let's you know this book helps people in some respect and gets them back to the text, sure. I'm going to come back to an earlier comment. We have more English renderings of the Bible than in their language group on the planet. And last I checked, I think English is a primary language. We're in the single digits, like 3% of the world's population wow. is English is a primary language. Wow. So when you look at, again, India and China, they don't have any of these things. Right. So it's a bit, uh, it's a bit proud and hubris to say, um, you know, this has to be the only Bible, King James included. Uh, so this is where uh, it's an appeal to being kind to one another. If they're going to read the Living Bible and that's going to get them into the Word, praise God. If they're going to read the NIV, praise God. I'm not out to bash these translations. I am saying if you're a student of Scripture, if you're a BSF precept community Bible study, if you're a nerd like me and like to read the Bible, it's good to have a number of texts. When I prepare a message, I'm going to look at ESV, King James, if I have time, New King James, always NIV, and NASB, because that's what the audience has in their hand. Mm -hmm. And if you've had an NIV since you were in youth group in 1980 or 90, Mm -hmm. you're not going to give it up. I understand that. I'm not trying to, you know, demean you. But uh, back to your clarification, Hannah, right, if a church is mandating one version as the only one you read, I'd be looking for a different church. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, back to a study point. King James, New King James, ESV, NASB, all good baseline Bibles. The Net Bible, all good baseline Bibles. But even at that, you would do well to compare, especially with a complicated passage. Mm -hmm. See how a number of of different translations render that and and see where they go. And the fun part, too, you'll find out those uh, translators' leanings. (laughs) Some of my friends on the ESV committee, they chose to put some words in the Bible that weren't there. And I, I asked uh, one of the friends on the committee, why did you put that word in there? That's an interpretive gloss. And we had an interesting 40-minute uh, conversation. And, <laughs> and I'm not mad. I'm not, like, you know, calling them out. But that's where I go back to NASB. Um, I think in almost 40 years of, you know, of, uh, combing through the scriptures, asking hard questions, I know enough Greek and Hebrew to, to be a workable student of the languages. I'm never going to be as good as my professors, but I can use the languages. And I can tell you at the end of the day when I do my homework, NASB lands pretty close to um, a good rendering of the Old and New Testaments. Well, and a fun throwback to Logos, they have a tool where you can compare text. And so I'll pull up three, four, five of the different translations and it will like highlight in red for you the differences or yellow the similarities you can see you it's know wonderful. NIV and ESV yep. 80% of this passage are identical or right. so it's fun to kind of really quickly look at the differences in translations 
And you can also pull up the exact, you know, Greek or Hebrew as we have it and click on it and then understand, oh, this Hebrew word means X. And then again, I can see that it was translated in four different English words and these four different translations. So it's a really fun tool, really easy way to dig into scripture in a way that you just can't with, you know, paper and pen. Have you, have you played with the one where when you, you can organize the word in the center column? So like the, the word, the Hebrew word chesed being the parent word, uh-huh. loving kindness. So it will organize the verse and even the way the English might flow, mm-hmm. it's a, the phraseology it's might different, be different. Sure. And so then you see the, the word in the middle and, and sort of the, I, I know, I'm, I'm not probably giving the best picture of this audio wise, but, but it, it, it's instead of just having all the verses compared, it actually lines up the word in a column. So for people that are visual learners, uh-huh. there's ways to organize it. And, and that's a great feature. This is a compare feature, I think it's called. And so you can have your top Bible, uh-huh. King James, New uh-huh. King James, ESV, NASB, whatever it is. And then all the searches underneath, as you've pointed out, it gives you a comparison percentage of, yep. you know, what it's like. Now, that's a cool feature with Logos, since we're on this, you've got a Bible open. You just hit the right or left arrow and then open Bible, and it will take you from every Bible in your library. So in mine, it goes NASB to NIV to Holman to Net Bible, and it's right or left click. Mm-hmm. And so you can just quickly scan through, through and see how they render it as, as well as the comparative. And then one more feature of Logos that's cool, Lexham, L-E-X-H-A-M, yeah. is their own internal branding, if I'm uh, explaining that correctly. And so Lexham, for people that aren't going to learn Greek and Hebrew, they have uh, created a translation where it's interlinear, as Hannah mentioned, with the Hebrew or Greek word right under it. So you don't have to be able to read Greek or Hebrew. They've done all the, all the homework for you. And then depending on the tools you own, if you click on that word, it will take you to the Lexham Concordance or the Lexham Bible Dictionary. And so they're integrating a whole set of packages with Lexham, which are, are brilliant and easy to use for uh, anyone that doesn't have the, the time to go you know, learn Greek and Hebrew for four or five years and bang your head against the wall learning languages. They've done all the homework for you. And so it's a great set of resources. Um, can't, can't say that enough. So again, logos.com forward slash in context, and you get 15% off up until December 24th. Well, keep emailing or calling in your questions. The email and phone number for Ask Dr. E will be in the show notes for this episode. Can't thank y'all enough, and we'll see you next time. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters. Mm-hmm.